we are picking up really after Jesus has just died. So verse 37 of chapter 15, Jesus breathes his last. Verse 38, the temple curtain is torn in two. And verse 39, the centurion who is there overseeing the crucifixion professes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where we ended last week. And so we pick up uh, really right there at the cross. And, uh, and so the, the him who is mentioned in here uh, right off the bat is still, is still talking about Jesus. So uh, if you'll follow along, we're in chapter 15, starting verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we come to God's word to rest in our identity in Christ, to be reoriented to who we are in the world and to be reinvigorated for what God calls us to. So let's pray. Father, teach us by your word. In particular, this morning, we ask that we would see the good news of Jesus and that we would hear what it means for us and your spirit would work that this would not be a passing realization, but a deep conviction that drives our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we tell lots of stories, don't we? Every culture has always told stories. Uh, some are obvious morality tales. They are, par- they are uh, fables about what you should do. 
but most of the time we tell stories that communicate what we value. Uh, it's no different today, right? I mean, every story you read, every movie you watch is communicating something to us of what we value. And we began, does anybody, I don't know if anybody remembers this, uh, this whole thing on Mark last February, talking about the stories that inform our lives. What story is it we tell ourselves? And we're all invested in some sort of story, right? Whether that is, uh, is just a story about where you fit in in your high school, or where you're heading in a career, or what sort of trajectory you're on, or what your family is, and who they are, and what's happening with them. We're always telling ourselves stories, And usually those stories are stories about achievement or love and meaning and purpose in life. Sometimes when those things aren't working out so well, they are stories of loss and of failure. Whatever the story is that we're telling ourselves, it's important to see that Mark wants us to see a different story. That the whole of the Bible wants you to understand your your own story in a different light. The death and resurrection are not only moments when we see that it is true what God has done, but but there are moments where we see that we wouldn't want it any other way. Because you're being invited not to see merely that you have a story about your life, but that, in fact, your life is caught up in God's story about the world. What the death and resurrection mean is that we have a living Savior and a living hope. A living Savior and a living hope. The living Savior piece is probably obvious enough. This is the resurrection story. Though Mark, uh, as we'll note in a minute, has a kind of a curious take on it. But it begins with uh, various witnesses about the resurrection. And all of the gospel stories are pretty fastidious about this, making sure you know the names of people that were there that saw the empty tomb. And they all tell it a little bit differently, and you can, well, I'm not sure everybody thinks this would be a fun exercise, but a fun exercise is to think how the, all, the, all the different sort of pieces fit together, and it turns out they fit together pretty well. Well, one of the important witnesses here is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. This is verses 42 to 46. Joseph, we don't know much about him other than he was a member of the Sanhedrin, Remember what the Sanhedrin just did. They had a trial for Jesus and handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. So it's unclear, to, it's unclear entirely, by the way, from what we know in Scripture, whether Joseph already believed in Jesus and was a, a voice within the Sanhedrin against what they did. Or whether, like the centurion who saw Jesus crucified, he comes to a realization along the way. It's entirely unclear. We don't have no idea. But we do know this, that he risked respectability by taking the body of this blasphemer, as at least the rest of the Sanhedrin seemed to think Jesus was. And he puts the body into his own family tomb. And... In ancient Israel, they had the common burial practice, especially for the wealthy, would be to have a, a kind of cave, essentially, 
that was the family tomb. A body would be taken there when the person had died, and then after a good long while, when it, they knew it would have decomposed, they would go back and collect the bones into a small box. And then the next person that died would be laid out to decompose and so on and so forth. So you could put a lot of people into one tomb over time. Uh, Some of the other Gospels tell us that this was a newly cut one, so the old family tomb must have been getting kind of crowded. But, uh, But Jesus is laid here, and Joseph offers his own tomb to him. Joseph risks his own respectability. And we know that it, it, was, uh, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, if you remember from last week when Jesus breathed his last. So it was getting late. Remember, the Sabbath starts at sunset. So by the time Joseph comes to the decision, goes to talk to Pilate to get permission to get the body, does all, goes through all the you know, red tape to get this done, it's pretty late, which is why the women actually have to come back on Monday morning, because they don't have time to anoint the body. Now, the point of anointment was not to embalm it, but to help with the smell, because these tombs would not have been hermetically sealed. So anyone passing nearby, you can imagine, right? So, they, so that's why they have to come back. They're trying to come back early Monday morning after the Sabbath to take care of what was not done Friday afternoon. Uh, They ran out of time. So we get to the women. And notice this, we get three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, who also in some of the other accounts might be Mary the wife of Clopas, we don't really know, Um, and a woman named Salome, uh, who John John also mentions one of Jesus' aunts, and that might be her, we don't Again, there's, it's interesting to think through how all these things kind of connect uh, from the different Gospels. But there's these three women, and they are witnesses to the death, two of them to the burial, and then all three of them again to the resurrection. Uh, so they are probably known within the early church, just as Joseph probably was. And they, are, and they come uh, to see you know, to, to anoint him, and they see something strange. And there's emphasis put on, the, on verbs about seeing because that's how the ancient world thought of being an eyewitness. I mean, we do kind of, t- even the word eyewitness <laughs> implies sight is really key to the whole thing. So uh, to have seen it, and certainly many people have written a lot about how significant it is that there are women that are mentioned as the first witnesses to the resurrection because... Women in both the Jewish culture of the time and the Greco-Roman culture were not considered reliable witnesses. I mean, whatever you may think of that now as, a mo- as modern thinkers, you know, lay that aside for a second. But it almost certainly means these are not made-up stories because that would be a bad story to make up. Uh, so they are witnesses to it. All the other guys that we've known that were Jesus followers, they all ran away. So it also says something about the character of these women, to be clear, that they stuck by the cross. That they were the ones willing to show up to a body that would already have started, at least they would have expected (laughs) to have started to decompose. It would have been an unpleasant job, for sure. But there's also another witness 
the angel. Uh, not a witness we necessarily would <laughs> expect, uh, in, again, as modern readers, but he is there to tell them what happened. He's not even called an angel, he's just called a person in white, but that's, of course, the description of angels. Usually, they have the same kind of shock, the same response that angels usually give, don't be alarmed, um, don't freak out on me, which apparently is what usually happens when you see an angel. Uh, don't freak out on me. <laughs> you came here seeking Jesus, but verse 6, he is risen, he is not here. The declaration, right, that he is risen. He's not around. Look around. You're not going to find him because he's alive. And then in verse 7, he gives instructions to them to go to Galilee. Now, he's, he's hearkening back to what Jesus told them in chapter 14, verse 28. You may, you may not remember this. <laughs> When Jesus told them they're all going to fall away, he says, but when I'm raised up, meet me in Galilee. So the angel is hearkening back to what Jesus had already told them, that they did not understand. Remember, they didn't get it all along that this was what was going to happen. And all of this amounts to this. We have a living Savior, which seems like an obvious point, because if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but have we thought about it practically? Does Jesus usually seem like more of a martyr that we need to remember or as one who is actually alive? Stop and think about that for a minute. Martyrs make for good examples. People to live by, people's teachings to follow. In fact, every other world religion, that is essentially, if they aren't martyrs, they are Mere examples, the leaders of, the, of those religions. I mean, even in Islam, where the prophet is considered, his example is considered extremely important, it is, it is technically speaking, incidental what happened in his life. There is, a, there is a Zen saying about the Buddha that if you ever meet the Buddha on the road, you should kill him. The point being that it's not the Buddha himself that matters, but the fourfold path that he teaches. Right? It's, it's the, the, point, the point of the matter is that the people who led those movements are good examples to follow according to those religions. But the Bible teaches something different. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus isn't an example to follow, but that is a secondary thing. The primary thing is that he is a living Savior. This can look like a few things. So, one, again, one of the telltale signs that we've misunderstood Jesus being a living Savior is when we primarily think of him as an example. That is, we primarily think of him as somebody who's out of the picture, as, as an agent, as an actor in this, in this life we're living. <laughs> when you think of someone as an example, you're primarily thinking of them as not somebody who actually has input into what's happening right now. You, you might think about what they would do or how they would act. When I was in high school, it was the, the evangelical fad was the WWJD thing, the what would Jesus do thing, which like every evangelical fad comes and goes but never really leaves the bloodstream. It's kind of always hanging around. Um, but, of course, we still have, there's always been an impulse 
in churches to become focused on moralizing. For that to become the focus of the church. And of course, in our own day, right, you can find moralizing churches that are kind of right-leaning, and you can find moralizing churches that are kind of left-leaning. It's always been an impulse in the church for the emphasis to become the moral question. And don't get me wrong, obviously the moral questions are important. Can't read scripture for very long without realizing that, but you also will find it very frustrating to read scripture that way because it's not the point. Or better said, the moral questions are secondary. They're never the primary thing. To put them as the primary thing is always a path of failure and frustration. Because the question is never, what would Jesus do? Or, you know, whatever updated version of that. It is, what did he do and what is he doing? Because he's not out of the picture. Because he's a living savior. The other way of of mistaking this, so that would be to have essentially a dead Jesus that is out of the picture. The other way of mistaking this is to have a kind of super naturalized Jesus. Not quite sure what the right word is. The best word for it is Gnostic Jesus. I say supernaturalized, not because Jesus isn't supernatural as the Son of God. Obviously, he's that. (laughs) But this is a Jesus that's removed because the, the Jesus of Scripture is also fully human and has been raised up fully human. The Gnostic Jesus, the Jesus that is simply spiritualized away, and again, this goes back to heresies in the early church, is a kind of Jesus that is simply an ephemeral spiritual reality. He helps us to connect to something that we truly are on the inside. Which is a very convenient modern myth as much as it was in the ancient world, isn't it? Right, of the, the spiritual real me that's inside. Not the real me that does all, says all those horrible things to my children. Not the real me that takes my spouse for granted. Not the real me that likes to cut corners at work. That's not the real me. Of course it's the real you. That's you in all your glory. There may be more to you than that. In fact, if you're in Christ, I guarantee there's more to you than that. But that's at least part of you. You see, the, that, the Gnostic, the over-spiritualized version of Jesus is convenient because it teaches, it, help, it teaches us that there's some real true me that nobody sees and, nobody, and not, I'm only kind of realizing along the way. And that way of thinking has always led down one of two paths. This is the strange part about it. That way of thinking, that there is some spiritualized version of me that's disconnected to the way that I actually live my embodied life in this world, has always led to either to hating the body, to punishing yourself in order to connect with that spiritual reality, or in a strange way, to simply indulging whatever you want to do in your bodily existence without thinking about the consequences or the costs of it, because that's not really who we are. And from the, early, from the earliest church, I mean, this has been a 
tension, people thinking of their identity as being this mystical thing that isn't connected to what we're doing. And the, the, here's the trick. Whether we have a dead Jesus or an overly spiritualized Jesus, the convenient thing is that it makes the story about me. It makes the story about my self-discovery or my good moral uprightness, what I do that makes me good. But the living Jesus teaches us that the story is about him. We become the supporting cast. We're not the star of the show. That's why the living Jesus is so difficult to swallow. I mean, some of it, yes, is our scientific mindset. Some, you know, but look, in the year 30 AD, nobody believed people were rising from the dead. You didn't need modern science to convince you that that was not a real thing. People have been dying for as long as they've been around and not coming back. No, the real problem is that if there is a living Jesus, then it is his story we're caught up in and not our own. And that is the story that Jesus, was, that Jesus actually suffered, the humiliation, the torment of the cross, but rose from the dead in the flesh. That his body is now glorified. It is free from the effects of death and misery. So it is changed, but it is still a human body. From the beginning, you know, Paul, in one of the very earliest pieces of the New Testament written in 1 Corinthians, you know, says, look, this has to be the case. If it's not the case, we are still in our sins. Because if the sinless one is still being held by death, then death still is in control. But of course, he has broken the power. The resurrection is the open confirmation that God defeated sin and death on the cross. But it's, it's not only that he's raised up and had a body and then just disappeared, but the way the story goes is he ascended into heaven, which isn't to say that Jesus disappeared. It is to say that he entered God's throne room to reign, to take control, to claim the authority that he's been given in heaven and on earth. That's what Jesus has done. He hasn't disappeared on us. And in fact, in John uh, 14 and 15, he tells us, it's a good thing that I'm going because I'm going to send the Spirit so that my presence will be actually with you, in you, wherever you go, with and in my church. Jesus has ascended not as a disappearing act, but as an, a an active work of his living presence so that we would actually experience his presence all over the world, everywhere we go. And the promise is that he's returning. So again, Jesus isn't an example, primarily. He is our living Savior. I mean, if we're the center of the story, it is up and down. It is out of control a lot of the time. But Jesus is the center. We know the story. We are confident of its end. So look, is you, the question is then, is your primary sense of what it means to be a Christian... And look, you might not be a Christian, but is this your understanding of it? 
Or even if you are a Christian, is this your understanding of it? That the primary sense of what it means is about the do's and the don'ts. Is that the first thing on your mind? Then you're missing out. You might call yourself a Christian, you might have called yourself a Christian for a long time, but if the way you primarily think about what it means to be a Christian is about what you do or don't do, you are missing out. Because the good news is not that you have to do and do and do. It is that Jesus is alive and has defeated sin and death for you and has sent his spirit into your life so that you are caught up into his story. That is the good news. Is your sense that you got to realize something secret about you? Yes, the secret is you're not the main character. The secret is that Jesus is alive. And he is bringing you into a way better story than your story of self-realization could possibly offer. It is life and light and love. Greater than you can imagine. That's the living Savior. And look, the more that we understand that we are not the center of the story, that we're the supporting cast, the more that the living hope becomes clearer. And here we get to the very, very curious ending of this book. Verse 8 of chapter 16. Uh, the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Hard cut. Roll, roll the credits. They run away. End of the story. Now, if you recall, back to chapter 1, Mark begins in a very similar, sudden way. There's a very brief introduction that this is the gospel of Jesus, and then we're into the action. Right, the literary term is in medias res, right, in the midst of things, right, that this is, this is how the story starts. It, you, know, you know the movie, the action movie, right, where it opens and the bullets are flying and people are dodging behind things, right? This is, that's, this is, that's how Mark begins. The other gospels all begin differently. Matthew and Luke have Christmas story stuff, right, where you hear about Jesus birth being predicted and him being born and all, you know, and different people visiting and all that stuff. John has a lengthy prologue that kind of tells us the importance of this before it even starts the story, right? Mark just tells you, this is the good news. Boom, start the, you know, we're in the middle of the action and he ends it the same way. In the effect in Mark, you know, whatever the virtues of all the other gospels are, and they are, there are virtues of all the other Gospels in this regard. But with Mark, the effect is to, add, to beg you to ask, where does this go? What's next? Which actually helps explain the bizarro ending that, to, to Mark. So if you look at, your, uh, at most modern Bibles, there is a section that is additional verses, 9 to 20. But almost every modern Bible will, will bracket those off. And usually have, the ESV says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. Uh, which, of course, is true. But if you read through them, you will realize something very quickly. All that those verses are doing 
is summarizing details from the end of John and the end of Luke and the, and the Acts of the Apostles. That's what it's doing. It's a kind of summary of what's next. Uh, we, if, we, if you look at the textual evidence, boy, textual criticism is everybody's favorite thing. I will tell you, even in seminary, nobody wants to talk about textual criticism, but it's worth it for a minute. <laughs> Bear with me. So the earliest documents, like that note says, don't contain this ending. It ends at verse 8. They were afraid. Uh, there are some, uh, not quite so early, but still relatively early documents that do have it, but have seem to, seem to indicate that it's set apart. But eventually, in the, the passing down of text, and remember, all this stuff is handwritten, right, for a very, very long time, uh, eventually gets incorporated into it. And the main reason it's even published in most English Bibles now is because the, it was part of the King James translation. <laughs> and they know that if you're reading some of those older versions, you will stumble across these verses. So they continue to do it. Uh, but note that it probably doesn't belong. And that's almost certainly true. Every, every New Testament scholar I know of, <laughs> no matter what their take on the truth of Christianity, thinks that as well. And that is a kind of weird thing. It's cro textual criticism cropped up a couple times in Mark. Uh, I don't know if you remember. There's been a few times I've talked about, oh, there's a verse here or uh, missing verse there or for some reason. But it's, it's, kind of, it's a curious thing because, and it's actually, this kind of thing is really instructive for us in the long run about the reliability of Scripture. Because... Uh, the, Bible, the New Testament is the most well-attested to document from the Greco-Roman period, period. Uh, the next closest is Homer. You know, the Odyssey, the Iliad. We have about 500 or so ancient copies or bits of <laughs> copies of Homer. We have about 24,000 New Testament documents. I mean, that is orders of magnitude more. And the earliest ones are within about 40 years of when they were written for the New Testament. The earliest ancient document that we have anything close to when it was written is still a couple hundred years in between. In other words, we have documents that are very close to when it was written, and we have a massive number of documents. That creates, though, a challenge. And a possibility of questions that arise. So Bart Ehrman is a, a well-known uh, New Testament critic who's in the religion department at the University of North Carolina, uh, a former fundamentalistic kind of Christian, now an agnostic. And he puts, it, he, he puts it this way. He says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. You get where he's going with this, don't you? These copies differ from one another in so many places we don't even know how many differences there actually are. Possibly it's easiest to put in comparative terms there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament, which sounds like a bad situation, right? It would sound like a bad situation until you realize that actually what we have is all the stuff to compare together. <laughs> so statistically, it's actually much easier to figure out what the right way is.
so that the vast majority of, and this is what he doesn't tell you. He tells you there's all these errors. I mean, more words than there are in the New Testament. But of course, 99% of those, I'm not making this statistic up. 99% of those variations are meaningless. There are spelling differences. Or, uh, or literally, in Greek, you can sometimes leave out a preposition or include a preposition in a phrase, and it still means the same thing. Uh, sometimes the word, or, the word order in Greek can be different. Sometimes there are, it's a pronoun used instead of the person's name. All those are meaningless differences. 1% of those, 1%, are meaningful differences they would actually change the meaning of a sentence, but are not viable. That is to say, the, the, the difference shows up in one document, <laughs> or maybe just a, a small little group of documents, but the vast majority are clearly read the other way. Less than 1% would actually change the meaning of the sentence, but not a single one of those differences changes anything that we know about doctrine. So that F.F. Bruce, who was a, kind of a, a towering figure in the New Testament in the 20th century, says, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors. So that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact wording is not so very large as might be feared. In fact, in truth, it is remarkably small. I bring that up because this is the biggest chunk of the New Testament, the, the very, this end of Mark, that is in question. But even there, you see that what is added is simply taking its cues from the text itself. The invitation to ask what's next. And probably some scribe wrote in notes, not realizing he would be a chain in a long you know, chain of people copying each other's old manuscripts, he wrote some notes because he was taking his cues from the text. What's next? What's next? And I just take that rabbit trail to encourage you to realize that the Bible's so reliable. This text is stable, like nothing else from the ancient world. And we ought to be, and you see, even in this example that is, you know, one of the largest issues in textual criticism. It's still taking its cues from the word. Whatever happened here, however, you know, exactly this, guy, this the first person that penned this thought about it, it was still thinking, what is next? Mark wants me to think about what is next. And that is the living hope, that the story never ends. Jesus' story is still ongoing. It means that we are caught up into it. And I think the women realize this too. Because the last verb is an evocative one. They were afraid. Fear in the Bible is actually a difficult concept to get our heads around. Because the Bible talks about fear and fearing God in two different ways. And I tell you, there's, it is the same vocabulary in Hebrew and in Greek. There's no difference in the words, 
But what's cons- what we're consistently told is that there are two different versions of fear, and one is unhealthy and one is healthy. There's a way of being afraid of God, which is wrong. And there is a way of fearing the Lord that is right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, remember, from Proverbs. One of the best illustrations of this is in Exodus 20. Moses has gone up the mountain, gotten the Ten Commandments, comes back down, and this is what he tells the people. Do not fear, right? Don't have the bad kind of fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Which had to have been a head-scratcher unless you realize he's trying to make a distinction, right? There's a kind of fear that is bad, and there's a kind of fear that is good. There's a bad kind of fear of the Lord where we're merely afraid of the consequences. And there's a kind of fear of the Lord that is a visceral realization of how great he is. And to come face to face with him. While we may not be afraid of judgment, it still makes you tremble. I think that's what's going on here because I think these women realize that the, everything has just changed. That God has done something beyond their imagining. That if Jesus has risen from the dead, then the power of death is broken. Then the power of sin itself is broken. Everything has just changed. I think they realize it. We know they go back and tell the disciples. It says they said nothing to anyone, but we know from the others, they they go to them. I think it's saying they didn't go around announcing it in town. And we know that the early church didn't do that. They didn't know what to say to anybody until the Spirit came in Acts 2. So they weren't going around announcing this, but they did go tell the disciples. But they were struck with the fear of the Lord, the right kind of fear. That God is greater than they had thought. He has done something they never would have thought about. Look, the meaning of the resurrection, we've talked about this before, is that God has judged sin on the cross, has dealt with sin, and has now broken the power of it. And that implies to us our living hope is connected deeply to that, right? I mean, this is what it means to be justified in God is that Jesus has been judged in our place. And on the, on the other hand, we are considered righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. It also means, you know, the, the death and resurrection also mean that we are being sanctified, being changed into his glory because he, he is a living savior and wants to be with us and promises the resurrection and wants us to be changed. And look, all of that, and this is so important, all of that is guaranteed in Jesus. Because he's been resurrected, because he promises the resurrection, because he has sent the Spirit, he is hell-bent, if you don't mind the turn of phrase, hell-bent on us being changed. On making us fit to be in his presence. Fit for glory. And if you have a kind of If you have the wrong kind of fear, if you're afraid of God, afraid that he will destroy you, none of that will ever make sense. 
Because when you hear about justification, when you hear about being judged, right, you will either think, well, that can't really be true, that judgment is done with, because why would I be good? What would possibly be the motive if I'm not afraid of being punished? Or you'll be the guy that's like, I'm off. I'm done. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Thank you, Jesus. Let me carry on with everything else I want to do in life. Which, of course, is not clearly not what we're called to either. But the right kind of fear, the fear that sees Jesus at the center of our lives, that's starting to understand how amazing it is that he gave his life for us and that he was raised for us, sees those two things together. Is trembles at the thought that Jesus was judged in our place. Even in, in joy is so amazed by that, that it shakes who we are. And because of that, wants to, out of love, be transformed into his image. That doesn't think of sanctification, of the change that's happening that we're, that we're, we're called to live into as a thing that needs to be motivated out of threats. <laughs> Nobody raises a child wanting them to be motivated out of threats. I mean, I'm not saying we do it well. Those of us that are parents, right? <laughs> I'm not saying we always live up to that. But we don't want that. We want our kids to know that they are loved and respond out of that. I know parenting is another complicated thing, but that's what we want, right? Even when we fail at it, that's the kind of thing we want. And that is what God wants. The kind of fear that out of love for him wouldn't want anything to be different. Wants to conform to him. You see, the fear of the Lord is inspired by seeing that we are really caught up into God's story. We are caught up into the story of the living Christ, the living Savior. Our living hope comes out of realization that it is his story and not ours. Jesus' resurrection is the sign that the story never ends. That even now, we are living out the same story that these women were. We are living out the same story that the early church was. Of being caught up in our identity in Christ. The resurrection is the guarantee that God has done all things well. It is the proof that God would shake heaven and earth for you. To bring you into his story. And it is the seal that everything that Jesus has done is effective in redeeming us. All of our response is always secondary. The difference between those who live afraid of God and those who live in a, the right fear of God is those who know that they are not living out their own story, but they are living out the calling of being God's children who have been brought near by Jesus himself. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would teach us the right kind of fear. 
not a fear that causes us to crouch or to be crushed by guilt and shame, but the fear that is a realization of how profound it is that you gave your son on our behalf and that you have raised him up to bring us near to you. Teach us to put all those other questions in their place and to see first and foremost that we are living out the story of your love and redemption. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.